Hello and welcome to the Possibility Podcast. This is session 11, in which I interview Professor Leela Vishwanathan, a professional planner in Ontario based at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Our conversation is really only loosely about planning, planning how we build and live in our cities and towns. This conversation is really much more about how we work together in a time that is fraught with opportunity to separate. And this conversation happened at a perfect time for me, as the news is awash with stories of the Amazon burning, and my heart is breaking. And one reaction that I am trying to feel, but to not make overly real, is the one of anger and blame. The way that Leela speaks is infused with compassion and empathy throughout. And in fact, as you listen on, that really becomes the focal point of our conversation. Thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome. Today I have with me Professor Leela Vishwanathan. Leela is a professional planner in Ontario. She is also an associate professor at the School of Urban and Regional Planning in the Department of Geography and Planning at Queen's University. I'm so delighted to have Leela with me today. Uh, We are going to be talking about the subject of uh, the opportunity in this crisis for improved quality of life as we move forwards into an uncertain future. So thank you, Leela, for joining me. It's great to be here today. Thanks for inviting me. So Leela, I know that you have quite a diverse range of interests and abilities. Can you tell me a little bit about what it is exactly that you do and that you're interested in? Sure. So I was trained as an urban and regional planner and spent many years working on the development of human services, designing services for folks, uh, primarily in the not-for-profit sector, as well as working in government on the development of social policy. And over the years, I find that by having worked with so many different kinds of folks and learning about the world from their perspectives, that I've been given this gift to be able to bring people together, to come together to solve and discuss more complex problems than the ones that always have the direct technical solution. I work on that too, but I, the fun that I get is working on those more complex issues together. This is where my knowledge of planning is really limited to thinking that planners kind of figure out where the roads are supposed to go and how the sewers are supposed to run and how much energy a city needs and all of that kind of stuff. So what else is there to planning? What are some of these complex problems that you help to solve? So if we think of climate change and the ways in which governments and people with expertise, as planners do, in terms of understanding how an intervention in one environment, say an ecological environment, can also have an impact on the built environment and also have an impact on our social environments. If we take an integrated approach to understanding the relationship between the green and the green ecological environments, our built environments, architecture, urban design, and our social and human and health environments, we have a better appreciation how one intervention can have in one space can have an impact on another and how we're all connected. So planners can have their point of entry 
In any one of those sectors, they might approach the world through the lens of urban design and urban development and land use. They might approach it from the, from the standpoint of how do we make our watersheds better? Um, how do we, how do we better control uh, and mitigate too much water runoff? Um, or we might be looking at issues from the standpoint of communities who have experienced changes in their neighborhoods either in the built environment or housing or the economy and how we can support them to be able to move forward to sustain themselves. So depending on where your starting point is, your starting point that the solution might be different, but there will be a need at some point to be able to communicate with each other. And if we're all living in the city together, there's going to have to be a point where we understand how we can better cooperate with each other. So planners are inherently collaborative individuals as well at some point. And we're in positions where we have the knowledge and the language to be able to negotiate with different levels of government, other professions like the legal profession, with doctors and the public health uh, to, uh, to solve complex problems together. So I've focused really only on these professions, but we can't forget that we also, our primary accountability as planners is to the public and that diversity of the public. Perfect. Thank you. You touched on so many different factors there, actually, and the importance of thinking that, okay, well, there's lots of different starting points that we come from and that ultimately we are all working towards solving a problem and that in that solution, it's going to require a number of different people coming together with their different expertise, with their different abilities, their different backgrounds, their different needs, etc., coming together and 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 finding that solution. And that actually leads me quite perfectly into why it is that I have you here in particular. You know, in our conversations that we have had and the different ways that we know each other, I have found it quite inspiring and enlightening in the discussions that we've had how how much you are aware of the human peace in regards to to our cities how they're built how they how we live in them um, how much we affect and impact each other and all the ways that we could work together that maybe we're not taking advantage of and it's really this human-centered approach to to what you do that I'm most interested in focusing on today and, and I mean, in particular, this has really been on my mind and was a big part of why I planned this podcast because of the enormous problem that the IPCC has challenged us with um, in their report in October. They said, basically, we have, well, now 11 years. By 2030, we need to cut our uh, global carbon emissions by nearly 50% and be heading for net zero, which we need to reach by 2050. I mean, this is an enormous challenge and seems to me one that requires all of us working together. And so I would kind of really like to dive into that with you now. How are we going to bring together all of these different people, all of these different backgrounds, all of our different needs and work together on this one? No easy questions today. <laughs> However, I think um, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm enlightened by your question and I'm, I'm laughing because, I mean, that is you know, one, one approach to see that this is no laughing matter. 
that this is truly a crisis and there's there's no time to waste. Uh, and yet there's this part of me that 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 sees the need to um, not just focus on the potential doom and gloom or the reality of that potential doom and gloom, um, but to think about this as an opportunity for us to find new ways to work together to deal with an overwhelming problem that may lead many people to not want to get out of bed because it's just too much. And yet, we spend a lot of time developing skills and knowledge and feeding our curiosity so that we don't stay in a dark room with the blinds pulled down, that we actually move forward and say, in this situation of potential despair, we will find, we will find a, a potential solution. We will work together to find something. And so there's a hopeful component here that emerges in this space of great uncertainty and great despair. That, that, is the, that is the flip side of the hope, is just despair. So if we choose not to focus on despair and we focus on hope, then so many windows fly open and lots of people can come together and, and reach some solutions. Now, the, the actions that can be undertaken are those that individuals feel that they can come forward with. Uh, and that I feel strongly, though, about the fact that we need to be more collaborative in our approaches. Uh, if you go back to that idea that depending on where your starting point is, you know, you're going to come up with some new ideas or new solutions, we often fall back on what we always know already, our comfort zones, especially if the environment is troubled it's unsettled. Um, my friend Carolyn King, who's former chief of the Mississaugas and the Credit First Nation, uh, I see her definition of, an, of uncertainty is the dust never settle. The dust never settles; it just keeps moving around. And so, if we're in this space where things are moving around, and there's there's always opportunity to do things, so that's that's where I stand. Exactly. I think the the position that I share as well, which is, but you've used very different language on it. Mm. I hadn't thought that way before um, in regards to uncertainty. Of course, it's always there. You know, the dust moves around. It just never settles. That's a really perfect analogy. And there is an opportunity for us to collaborate and to, and to, and to work together on this one in a, in a whole new way um, and maybe learn new things and gain a lot of personal satisfaction from doing that too. And I guess that the, the challenge, of course, is that some of what we're witnessing is that as this problem becomes more apparent and the challenges become more real, real, um, there's evidence that we may be inclined to separate, to move into fear, to make people wrong, to build walls, to keep people out, to push them over there. And so, you know, in your work, through your work, do you have any guidance on the how do we actually collaborate? How do we not separate, but how do we come together and have meaningful and fruitful discussions that can actually actually progress and change the way we shape our, our landscape for this outcome that we need to, to get to in just 11 years' time? The starting point is that we have to have more belief in each other first, that we all have something to contribute to this solution. No one is better than the other. No one is smarter than the other. But we all have to accept that this is an issue. Climate change is real. There's no point in being in the denial camp for us to move us closer to um, 
developing spaces where we can live together as well as we can, um, given the circumstances, rather than going into a total fight or flight mode, that is running away from uh, places where we know are going to be flooded and not thinking about the people who are left behind because they don't have the opportunity to leave. We have to care about those folks. So the term compassion comes to the forefront where what does it mean to be a compassionate human being to bring all of ourselves, our technical know-how, our understanding that as humans, we are inherently social animals who can connect with one another. What do we do? So compassion is this piece and the more quiet time that we spend getting to an understanding of what that is for ourselves within the our own capacities, our own resources, the closer I feel we'll find those points of human connection. There are individuals who are trained to be able to speak the language of government to ensure that they listen. There are amazing scientists out there who are translating their scientific knowledge in a variety of different ways so that the public can understand what they're coming up with, as opposed to purely other scientists or only government. So communication, along with compassion, and understanding that everyone deserves to share the, our, our knowledge um, equally and openly with one another is important. And then this willingness to own part of this problem, then to connect with each other will, uh, will enable us as individuals and as collaborators to take action. Planners are, are um, the type of people who have to listen to what policies are there, what guidelines are laid out. Um, they may feel both in a position of power to affect change, but they, they are constrained by the policies that are there. But if they see themselves as any other human being that has agency, they may be able to influence and force the asking of different questions than, than, than are being posed now. That if folks are not asking the right questions or folks aren't aware of timelines, that they can push, they can push up to government and say that these are the things that need to be to be heard. Um, we've talked as planners in different sectors that people have voices, but we're in a position where we can help amplify those voices. It's not about giving people voice. A lot of them have voice. It's about enabling them to amplify their voices in spheres where they may never had have access. So I don't know what number I'm at now in terms of what steps, but understanding accountability and accessibility in this whole process um, also brings humanity back into the problem and in problem solving. Um, sure, I got my training as a professional planner, but I have to connect with people as individuals and as humans uh, first and foremost. There are others who connect with the trees and the plants and the water. Um, there are those who create who uh, create uh, infrastructure. They That is their starting point, but for me, it's really, thinking about how people can connect and what they bring to the table uh, and this, their starting point for solutions. Beautiful. Thank you. This word compassion, you repeated uh, over and over. Compassion, communication, 
And, you know, to me, the word compassion is quite a big word. It means that we don't necessarily have to uh, believe in what someone is saying. We don't have to align with their cause. We don't have to take on their point of view. We just have to understand that they have an experience, um, that they experience the world through through suffering and joy in, the, in their own way that they do, and that their experience is valid, even if it's one that we haven't experienced ourselves and it's quite a it's quite a, a, a big thing to be able to hold in in yourself um, and something that I think you know in spiritual circles it's a it's a word that really is quite strived for how can people work towards compassion I mean because it seems to me that what you're talking about is is not just that planners have to have compassion you know with all the different people that they're liaising with as these as these um, kind of focal points of communication and action but you're talking about also that that as individuals we need to have compassion before we recorded you mentioned about corporations having compassion in a way that I hadn't thought about before and maybe that compassion, does mean sacrifice too. So can you talk about this a, a little bit? When I think about compassion and we can think of, sure, I, I started off by talking about planners in this professional realm or those who are in the legal profession or all of these these bubbles, right, that give us authority um, to speak in, in different spaces and to intervene, to take our agency and intervene. When we think about compassion and we're connecting with one another as human beings, um, there, there are two things that come to mind. One is going back to this initial idea of, of compassion as being a feeling that someone is so moved by someone else's experience, even if they themselves have never had any connection with that person, that space, or that personal experience themselves, that they are compelled to take action that we we take a big leap away from our location in terms of, of, of feeling pity or feeling sympathy or even empathy that requires someone to see some common ground with one another. And we make this broad leap to compassion. It can be a very powerful emotion that leads to action, that leads people to a space where they bring all of themselves, their technical knowledge, their expertise, their ego even, and their ability to affect change, and they're driven by the compassion. But in, in many spaces, especially those from scientific, even governmental and professional realms, emotion is not viewed as an asset. The ability to count, to measure outcomes, to align policies and intentions, those are what take priority. And also to meet the economic bottom line. If sustainability involves economics, then the bottom line of, of, uh, of um, economics and economic outcomes and profit too often drives the dis these discussions of very complex problems. So uh, my, my friend Joyce Davidson, who, is, who, has, who I believe so strongly brought this idea of emotional geographies to our discussions around place and space, that importance of planning and cities as having their own emotional geography and climate change having an emotional geography that leads people to, to a space of compassion to say, I need to be able to do something. I am moved 
to do something. That has to matter in our spaces of policy and political discussion and discussions around corporate responsibility and profit making. Folks are going to have to be willing to give something up in order to be able to live more comfortably with one another and to be able to pass things on to our future generations. Climate change is just not about ourselves. Indigenous teachings speak to seven generations, thinking about the seven generations to come, not just about the place where we are right now. And if we think about the shelf life of a public policy as linked to the shelf life of a government, a four-year time frame in a democratic state is not enough for us to think about long-term change. We have to be willing to think about those deep questions around sacrifice. We have to be thinking about the value of emotion to economic, cultural, and political well-being as well as individual well-being. And so coming back to compassion, it means it, it means inserting conversations, perhaps as a starting point, of, compa- of compassion in spaces where those conversations may never have happened before, and the willingness to say this matters, that emotions exist in all of these spaces where technical knowledge is both necessary, but reigns too much that um, we don't get that drive for people to act. It stays in a report on a shelf. It gets picked up perhaps in the next election, (laughs) after the next election. But compassion is something that I think that can um, really be brought into spaces where it may never have been considered as part of that geography. Leela, totally fascinating. I love what you said about this bottom line that, you know, economics are too often considered to be the bottom line and have to make sure that, you know, this much of a a profit margin is kept. And that actually that may now be kind of irrelevant given the scope of what we're talking about here. We may have to be willing to sacrifice some of what we previously considered our our absolute bottom lines and whether that is the, the economics, the technological, um, structures and how the considering the emotional component which had been previously looked at as um, a disadvantage a hindering of the process may actually be exactly what we need to do what we need to do just as you just said there that it's that emotional um, geography the emotional piece that will move the report from sitting on a shelf to something that actually um, takes legs. There's something I would like to understand a little bit better in what you just said. Um, I have spoken with Joyce as well and know Joyce and her, the way that she talks about things is remarkable and, and mind blowing. And until I met her, this concept of emotional geography was really new to me. And as you just talked about it there, what it made me think of was almost the layers to the landscape that we hadn't kind of seen before. But just for people for whom that term is even new, because I feel like it's an important one in this discussion. How would you describe emotional geography? Oh my goodness, Joyce, please forgive me when I come up with my with my understanding. Uh, I, I let me say that uh, I think emotions are both tangible and intangible. That 
um, what some people feel is a rumbling of, uh, of, 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 a, of an intention um, that they can't actually figure out where to apply it. Um, it, it is a space where they have to sit and that's where this, this sitting in this rumbling leads to innovation, leads to an opportunity to figure out where connection can take place. So when I think, when I think about emotional geography, I feel it as not necessarily always the words that we can use to describe the sense and the sensibility that's emerging uh, in our efforts to connect with one another and in our efforts to solve problems. This is not a dictionary definition that I'm giving. I'm describing, I'm describing the, what happens, I think, when people are at this moment where they don't know what's driving them, but they know that there's a need to act. Governments then may come up with calls to action that are very specific and give some folks t something tangible to, to, to draw on, draw upon. But in fact, that, that, that may help or hinder the process. I, people have to find their own way and they'll find that if they do connect with their, their feelings, <laughs> where they're located, as opposed to trying to, to explain why through all the rational means that are available to them. We are human beings that draw on our rational sensibilities, I think, as well as these aspects that we don't actually know what, what drives us to, to act. Um, and, um, and I feel that if, you're, if we're able to identify the meaning and the intention over time, um, it, leads to, it leads to positive outcomes. Leela, I just had a big aha as you, as you talked me through that. This idea that emotional geography is this, is this layer in this landscape that we can actually sit in, feel the rumblings of it. You know, what is moving around there? What's stirring? Where are we in that landscape? And actually, if climate change has its own emotional geography, then that's exactly where we can all sit together. Because in that landscape, we all have fear. We all have grief. We all have suffering. We all have a future that's threatened. We all have despair and denial. We all have hope. And just maybe different degrees of those things, depending on our experiences to date and our capacity to move through those different emotions. That's so helpful for me. And it's this, you know, in that place is where we can actually find compassion, isn't it? And that's maybe where those of us that feel so aligned to the cause can... Um, not step into further separation by getting angry and frustrated with people that seem to be in denial or refusal or whatever, but then just understand, well, they're just in a different place in this geography. And maybe they don't have the resources that I have to move through my fear and my grief and my suffering. Have I understood you correctly? Yes. And I think the, fl the flip side of that or another aspect of that is the frustration that comes when the anger and the fear mongering come from from folks who are in, in positions of power and that can feed our helplessness. So it becomes really harder for anyone to show compassion to those who are in positions of power who are fear-mongering. So that becomes part of the struggle. But as you were speaking, I was thinking about how um, people in my profession were very much problem solvers, 
we we don't get stuck in situations where things aren't working. We we pick ourselves up again and we we try to find more solutions. But when we're so stuck in this need to fix things, we're we're not thinking about what we also have to let go of. And this is this need to think about what we're letting go of or the need to be able to let go, uh, this sense of attachment that we have is uh, it, it fits well with uh, the struggle to find compassion, um, the struggle to sustain that compassion, even for those of us who may be of the camp who think that compassion is something that comes naturally, or folks who are in my camp, which is that we can teach compassion. We can figure that out. We can figure out how to bring that to the surface. Beautiful. More ahas. <laughs> you, you know, this. So first of all, that, yes, acknowledging that um, what we are facing, as with any challenge, will require sacrifice. Um, and, and I'm going to ask you to share something, actually, that you shared with me earlier. But secondly, the point that I also wanted to highlight of what you just said there is that is that compassion doesn't necessarily always come naturally. We It's something that we can practice and that we can learn. So just going back for a second to the first point on this idea of sacrifice, um, you know, you gave a really great example earlier of how compassion, before we started recording, mm-hmm. how compassion can be um, brought into a corporate setting and, and what that might mean in terms of, of sacrifice. So can you just repeat that? for me now. Sure. In, in our, in our discussion, and this relates also to letting go, uh, and sacrifice the, uh, and also this idea that to have, um, a sustainable future, we have to think about cultural, economic, political components. Uh, some folks talk about the trade-offs across those three components. Uh, that term of, of trading off it might be just a different language of sacrifice. It might be more a palatable term to use in those situations. But at the end of the day, in my view, people who have a lot need to know that they need to give some things up to help others who don't have as much. And this is not in terms of um, consumer goods that I'm talking about. In sharing, it means it means maybe not making as much money as we are used to making um, or in the, in the state of corporations, not simply thinking about what how much money they're going to be making in the next quarter, but thinking about the implications of their decisions on perpetuating a crisis, perpetuating fear, perpetuating the uh, situation where there may be people who are not able to take action, even though they feel they have agency. I think that an individual may be able to do only so much. A corporation can do so much more and they can consider their actions in terms of their impact on climate change. It'll make it so much easier on people who are worried that they did not recycle that plastic bottle or they bought that bottle of water that um, that is contributing to um, to uh, so many problems around garbage and use of water and, expend- and expenditure of energy. I'd like to see more conversations about compassion in our governments, in our corporations, in our universities, in our spaces of learning. Uh, and that then will put us in a better position not just to be judgmental of one another and pointing fingers without 
or with reason, but to really get to the heart of the matter that we are on this planet. This planet will continue long after we're gone. But how are we going to manage our connection with one another while we're still living on this wonderful blue ball in the sky? You know, what we are facing does feel a lot easier if we can just acknowledge that we don't have to desperately hold on to everything that we think that we need. We, uh, the way that we live, has become quite tied up in what we have. Like, it's just the way that our culture is. It's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to spend money. We're supposed to accumulate. We're supposed to have the latest this and the latest that. And, I mean, the whole question arises, which is, you know, where we kind of started the conversation, is there an opportunity in this crisis? The way that we're living now, does it really make us happy? You, you pointed me to... Um, a publication, a UN World Happiness Survey, and some really great kind of thought-provoking stuff in that. Like, what does really make us happy? And so maybe can you speak to that for, for a second? What in terms of how we live that we think we so need, is that actually making us happy? And maybe what are the opportunities here um, as we try to move through this crisis in a new way with compassion? It's easy to point the finger at one thing that's creating a problem. We can point to technology and our dependency on it. The importance that people feel in terms of connecting um, 24-7 with one another through technology or the distractions that that creates as preventing our ability to connect, really connect with each other. There are discussions that we are in a loneliness epidemic that uh, too many individuals are actually living on their own. And yet, on an economic, in an economic sense, it's a sign of prosperity. People have enough to be able to afford to live on their own. Uh, so that shows progress in people's ability to fend for themselves. And yet, the flip side of that is this loneliness epi epidemic that we're seeing amongst young people, millennials, not just senior citizens. And yet, if we were to think only in terms of loneliness, we could put up our hands up in the air and say, we can't change it. There's no way that we can actually connect. Planners have been coming up with solutions, again, taking the opportunity to try to fix things um, as we are in this trend of loneliness by looking at intergenerational living, uh, living situations, by looking at can we bring young people's schools to seniors' residences? Uh, can we ensure that maybe seniors and students can live together? Can we create, can we change our zoning bylaws? Can we create new design guidelines to permit these ways to bring the built, create the built environment in a manner where connection becomes almost natural and it meets a need? Students need housing, seniors need connection with folks across generations. So there are little examples of innovative approaches that function within the existing system that we have and slowly create some form of inc incremental change. At the same time, there are folks who are restless and are not willing to create incremental change. They're, they're saying, that's not my bag. I need change now. And we depend on the protests, we depend on the activists, we depend on those individuals who are willing to sacrifice themselves, put themselves at the front lines to ensure that folks who are in positions of power will listen. All of us 
are in this together. And so we will find the means as individuals or as groups, whether it's pushing for more corporate responsibility, but also what does compassion and sacrifice mean in that sphere? Finding amazing solutions to the loneliness ep ep epidemic that enables people to connect in ways that take advantage of our built environment, of our bylaws, of our law, of our um, design guidelines to make these solutions possible. And also to ha give recognition to both the scientists who put in their time to actual do actually document effectively how the world is changing and, and what, what it really means to be in this crisis, but also the activists who are willing to go to the front lines, perhaps not make monetary sacrifices in the same way that folks might say corporations are making, but by putting their lives on the line and willing to risk railing against the system, they wake us up. They wake us up to say that we need to do something too. Uh, and they get us out of our comfort zones that in which we rely on our credentials, in which we rely on our positions of power to affect change. Um, they, they, they make us realize that we're also connected to each other uh, and that we in our own ways can make a difference. Leela, what a perfect note to finish on. I mean, even just hearing you acknowledge all the different players the way you did with that, such a, from such a genuine place of gratitude. The, the planners, the activists, the scientists, the corporations, the politicians, everybody has a role to play. And even just hearing you acknowledge that with such gratitude generates compassion. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom there's nothing else to call it, and experience um, with me today. Once again, I'm enlivened and uh, enlightened after sharing time with you. Thank you, Leela. I'm so grateful for this opportunity. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you for listening. Wherever you are, remember that we really are all in this together.